0: My happiness does not depend on them doing what I want. My love is here, my love is strong no matter what, and I'm happy because of that. Focus on what matters, which is your inner character and what you are able to offer to the world. Don't, don't get distracted by everything else that's going on around you focus on what you are able to bring to the world and your your own joy and your own spirit
1: when i was reading that book it it blew my mind i couldn't actually believe what i was reading i couldn't believe it and that's what changed my life welcome back to the everyday stoic with myself william mulligan joining me today is the co-founder of stoic air author of journal like a stoic and Tranquility Parenting, the great parenting book inspired by Stoic philosophy. She is a committee member of Modern Stoicism and board member of the Stoic Fellowship. Today's episode is sponsored by Huel, which is a quick, affordable, and nutritiously complete food with everything that your body needs. Let's get into this talk. How did you get involved in Stoicism?
0: Well, I might tell this when you ask me later as well, but Um, It was kind of a a crisis in my life where I was just looking around for life guidance. And I don't know, maybe like some of your listeners, I went online and one day I just went on Amazon and typed in wisdom in the search box and a few different books came up. And one of them was a book on stoicism. I don't know if you've read it. It's A Guide to the Good Life by William Irvin.
1: Yeah, it's a great book.
0: That was my first book. and. I mean, the rest is history, right? I read it and I got hooked and then I just kept reading and started writing and started getting more involved in things. So that's how it happened for me.
1: Yeah, I think my introduction was uh, the meditations. Mm. I didn't know it was stoicism. So I was reading this thing and I was like, this is this is amazing. And then I saw I was looking for more. And then uh, I found out what stoicism was. I came across like William B. Irvine, um, Donald Robertson, Massimo and it just like opened my eyes to not just to stoicism. It was more that you can like develop a philosophy in your life and actually improve your life. You don't have to just sit with what's given to you.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it was very similar for me. How has stoicism helped you in your life? I mean, in every way possible. I think starting from the top. You know, just the idea, like you were just saying, of having a life philosophy, which a lot of people don't really think about. And for me, so my kind of crisis, or I call it the shipwreck moment, like Zeno, you know, Zeno was shocked and then he came to stoicism. So I call that the shipwreck moment. Um, So for me, it happened when my third child was born, he was three months old. And so I already had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And I was just like, grasping at straws. I was looking for some kind of system of guidance because I knew I needed something, but I also wanted to pass it on to my kids. So it kind of came into the mix while I was already a parent. And it just, I had been reading about parenting philosophies. I don't know if you've read any other parenting books, but it's a, it's a thing in parenting books. They say, okay, develop your parenting philosophy. But if you don't already have a life philosophy, it's like, how does your parenting philosophy fit into the rest of your life? You don't know, right? So you need to have that overarching picture first to kind of guide you in every way. So yeah, I would say that mine, my big thing is that your philosophy starts at the top and then every part of you fits together inside that philosophy. So you're being a parent, being a, a brother or a son or a sister or a daughter or being, you know, whatever your career is and your hobbies, all of it fits together in one package and it all fits under that umbrella of your life philosophy. It's not as if you behave differently while you're at work, right? Versus when you're at home and all of it informs the choices you make as far as the big life choices, like your career or where you live, that kind of thing, as well as your everyday choices, like what to have for lunch. So it all kind of comes together.
1: Yeah, I think you talk about core beliefs and, you know, that's how Stoicism has helped me is. Um, it's just having a core belief to always fall back on. Like you, you kind of, you know, if you're having a bad day or a good way, you, you know your direction that you're going in. And the reason your book helped me is like, um, I knew I was a, a new parent and I thought, how am I going to do this? And you kind of just put it in front and say, this thing that you've got, this philosophy for life, you can do that with your kids in a way and I was like oh I've, I've been studying stoicism for so long I've, it's helped me so much and now it's going to help my kids I think um it, it it just gives you a lot of confidence I think having that core uh, belief but um how would you go about developing a core belief
0: Well, I think there are different ways. Um, For me, I'm the kind of person, when I go into a store, I like to look at every single option before I make a choice. I know not everyone is that way. My husband walks into a store, picks up the first thing off the shelf and says, this is good enough. I'll use this. So, you know, it depends on your personality and your style. But for me, I looked into Buddhism, you know, I looked into various strands of self-help and kind of spirituality and none of it really was speaking to me. None of it really matched what I was looking for, what I needed in my life. Whereas when I found Stoicism, it just immediately clicked. And I thought, wow, why has nobody ever told me about this before? You know, which is one reason why I wrote the parenting book, because I wanted to share it with other people. It's like, wow, when it helps you so much, you want to pass it on to everybody else as well.
1: Yeah. Your, so your introduction to Stoicism, because um, my introduction was kind of for the I guess the wrong reason, the misconception of stoicism, that it will make me like um, strong. Because at that point in my life, I kind of needed. That's what I thought I needed is like to just get my head down, um, be emotionless, get on with it. And then you know, it took. It didn't take me too long to realize like, well, that's completely not stoicism. And stoicism is this beautiful philosophy that is about. I guess it's about everyone bringing everyone together in a way and being a good person, not just for yourself, Um, but yeah, that that misconception is going around. I'd like to hear what you think of that misconception, or if you was kind of introduced in that same light, and you thought, oh, this is what stoicism is, or was you just straight away, got it?
0: Yeah, I did not go through that route. I went through a different route, because I was already looking for wisdom and a system of guidance. Um, But I do know that that misconception is, you know, it's very prevalent, it's very prominent. And, you know, I think there's some benefit in staying strong, but there's it can be really dangerous if people are just suppressing their emotions, you know, because eventually you're going to crack. If you just bury all your emotions inside, it's got to come out at some point and it's probably not going to be in a good way. So the way I look at stoicism is that it helps you develop your system of values. So you know what's important in life and what isn't. So once you realize, Hey, you know, all these external things, It's nice to have money, but it's not a determinant of my happiness, right? I can be happy if I don't have money. So money and social status, these kinds of things, they're preferred indifference in stoic terminology. So it's nice to have them. If you have them great, super, but you're not going to damage your character, for example, to make more money, or you're not going to do something unethical in order to get these preferred indifference. It's just nice if you can get them, but they're not the determinant of a good life. So I think, you know, keeping that in perspective, it really helps you to figure out where you want to go in life. And so to me, that's, that's what stoicism really does. It's that system of values. And once you grasp that, then the, the anger, the fear, those negative emotions, they just kind of melt away or fade away. So it's not that you're suppressing them. It's that you understand that those things don't really matter that much anymore. And you can just let all those things go. that don't matter.
1: Yeah. I like that. It's, um, I kind of felt the same thing. as like when I started focusing on, I guess, the positive or, um, you know, gratitude and being present, um, I was no longer actively trying to suppress my, uh, what people would call like my negative traits, you know, anger. Um, I wasn't working on those things. I was just looking towards the positive, focusing on gratitude and being present. And those things started to kind of just disappear, like like say melt away. Um, One thing I'm really interested to know, because... Anytime I post a video or a post about women being stoic, I'm met with a lot of criticism um, because people seem to think that women can't be stoic. I don't know where the myth comes from, but uh, could you clear up that myth?
0: Sure, yeah, women can be stoic. (laughs) Stoicism is my guiding philosophy um, and a lot of other women I know as well. I think traditionally women have had other options for life guidance. Like a lot of women today turn to yoga or other types of spirituality. So I think women have some different outlets, whereas men tend to gravitate towards philosophy or stoicism or martial arts, this kind of thing. So I think you just see a lot of men clustering in this area and then you, know, you get the idea that it's masculine. And of, of course the history as well. In the past, philosophy was only done by men. Women were not allowed to participate, not that they didn't want to, not that it didn't apply to them, but in many cases they were not allowed. And I will actually say that the Stoics were pioneers in ancient Rome as far as allowing women to kind of share in the community of reason is is the way you might say it. For example, Musonius Rufus, who was a philosopher and the teacher of Epictetus, he believed that women are completely capable of being virtuous, have the same rationality as men, which for ancient Rome was quite radical. Um, so it's kind of always been available in Stoicism, but it hasn't always been realized.
1: Yeah, I, I like that. Um, I've re- kind of researched it a lot because I, I wanted to be correct when I like give this advice to people, especially around women being Stoics. And, you know, you come across a few um, his- historical figures, like off the top of my head, I can think of Portia Katanas and um, Fania uh, I can't think of any more. But then, if you if you look back, like you said, Masonius Rufus talks about women being stoic, or um, saying it, it's good for women to seek virtue, just as it is for men to seek virtue. Um, I, I just, yeah, it's good to clear up that misconception because the person that introduced me to philosophy and the most stoic person I know is my mom. Um, although she doesn't know what stoicism is, but she is like the perfect example of a stoic and. I always love to like mention that. I've wrote about that, but then people seem to criticize it for some reason. And I think it's down to the misconception of Stoicism.
0: I agree. I'll just mention one other historical figure who was a woman, and that is Elizabeth Carter, who was actually the first person to translate the discourses of Epictetus into English. She was the first person, not just the first woman, but the first person to translate them. And this was back in the late 1700s. So it was, again, it was quite radical for the time that she was a woman intellectual in London, um, but she was admired by Samuel Johnson, for example, and a lot of the the men and women who were writing at the time. So I just wanted to mention that even going back to, you know, the 18th century, it was women were interested in Stoicism and always have been.
1: Uh, I thank you for that. Because I, I think... Um... The whole point I see from Stoicism, and I guess like Zeno maybe thought this, is because he went into the public and just taught anyone. Is this philosophy can help anyone, and it's it's absurd to reserve it for a select few and hide it from people when the whole goal is kind of to make a better world, I suppose. Um, so yes, yeah, sharing it to more people is better, and that's what I'm doing with the Everyday Stoic. I kind of. I try to share it in a more understandable way because uh, my background, nothing to do with philosophy. I, I didn't when I when I was younger, if I looked at philosophy, I thought it was for like super smart people and I would never understand this. But when I like I said, when I read the meditations, I was like, this is really easy. Like this is what I'm seeing around me, but it's just in, in a different way. It's in this name called Stoicism. So yeah, it's good. I think it's good that it is for everyone. Absolutely. I think in your book, you talk about um, if, you, yeah, if you believe you're injured, then you're injured. Can you explain that a little bit more?
0: Right. So you'll hear Marcus Aurelius talking about this, also Epictetus. So we talk about this as far as your value judgments. So it kind of goes back to the ancient Stoic idea of impressions, how you take in information from the world So you you might see something that happens, but your body, you know, your nervous system takes it in, your brain processes it. And a lot of times we will automatically add a judgment. This is good, or this is bad. When something happens to us, we don't even realize we're adding that judgment. So for example, if someone insults you, you automatically feel upset because you've interpreted that as an insult, as something bad. What the ancient stoics say is that actually you are the one who's adding that opinion it's not part of the world the the judgment that this is insulting and this is bad that is not part of that event that is your interpretation of that event and if you change your interpretation then you no longer have the emotion of anger that goes along with that so someone insults you if you decide that that insult doesn't matter then you're not angry. You don't feel insulted. And Seneca actually compares it to a toddler. So, you know, if a toddler comes and hits her mother or something like that, the mother's not angry because the toddler is just being a two-year-old and that's just what two-year-olds do. So you can distinguish the event from the feeling of anger. If I'm able, when when I'm hit by this person, if I'm able to not be angry, then when this person slaps me with an insult, then I can also not be angry. It's all about your interpretation.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, especially on social media now, people are just interpreting anything to be uh, an insult because I, I guess it, things are quite polarizing um, and I think I remember an actress saying it's a bit of a different example of it but she was saying if she insulted you in Spanish and you don't understand Spanish then it, you you wouldn't register the insult so it's your understanding of it and interpretation that um, creates the insult I suppose
0: I love that yep yeah, that's exactly the same that the Stoics are saying <laughs>
1: Do you know, well, I guess you do know a lot about like the concept of sympathia, because my interpretation of it is just that we're all part of this, uh, to simplify it, we're all part of like a big, larger community and being good in that community, being good yourself puts good out into the community and, you know, being good to others brings good back to you. So it's like we're all connected in this cosmic community. That's the way I've simplified it.
0: Yeah, that doesn't play a big role in my um interpretation of stoicism, I would say. I tend to think more in terms of maybe cosmopolitanism is the term I would use, which is kind of referring to something similar, but we're all part of the same picture, right? We're all part of the same cosmos. And what one person does impacts everything else, right? We're all interconnected and interdependent. And for that reason, one person is not more important than another, We tend to kind of get kind of self centered and get really concerned and focused on our own lives and how things impact us. But if, for example, you kind of step outside of that picture and take the view from above, for example, like you're looking down from a mountain and suddenly your own little problems don't seem as big and important, right? They're just one part of everything else that's going on. So you might see. A thousand other people who are dealing with the exact same problem that you are. This is actually really useful for me as a parent because when my kids were little and, you know, temper tantrums were so difficult to deal with, I would have to kind of remove myself from just the anger and frustration of the situation and remember okay, how many children are there in the world right now? How many are probably pitching a fit, a temper tantrum? Probably thousands. I'm not alone. So that would help me feel more connected to everybody else as well.
1: Yes, that actually has really helped me, um, that exact concept. That you wrote about it in your book, actually. But um, when my daughter's crying, like I have like an impulse. Like in public, I'm like, oh, no, uh, be quiet, be quiet. Like uh, A while ago, I would have had that impulse. But I think understanding that idea is like kids cry um, and other parents have this exact same problem. Um it's just like, it, it helped relax me. It helped me not be bothered about that. Just going like, well, it is what it is. This, this is happening. And I can't really do much about it. Like, I know people say you can stop a kid from crying, but sometimes it's just, especially like if you're in a shop and it's busy, um, it, it's hard to just stop the crying. So it's, it, that idea has really helped me.
0: That's awesome. And another thing that comes up a lot, at least I've had to deal with, and I think a lot of other parents as well, is the judgment of other people, like you were just mentioning. And it only gets worse, trust me, the older your child gets, you know, other people judge what you do as a parent. And it's easy to start judging yourself and being really worried about what other people are thinking about you. And this is something that stoicism has really helped me with because you focus on what you're doing, right? You, you know, you look at your options, you decide what the right thing to do is. And once you've made your decision, you can feel comfortable that, hey, I've surveyed all the options. I know I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to stick with it no matter what other people are doing. And, you know, this applies when you're in the store with your crying child and some people, you know, there'll be some people who shoot you dirty looks. And I always try to remember that those people are not, you know, I don't have to get upset by what those people think about me they're not being very nice. So who cares what, uh, you know, an unfriendly person is thinking about my child. It totally doesn't matter. And an example from when my kids are older. So my daughter is 11 now. And obviously there's the whole phone thing these days. Everybody, every kid wants a phone and all of her friends have a phone and I refuse to let her have a phone. (laughs) Um, based on the research that I've seen about how damaging it can be for young girls to have a smartphone. So for for us, we have conversations about why she's not going to have a phone until she's about 13. And it's really difficult because, yes, all the other parents have given their kids phones. And I'm sure everybody has their own reasons, right? I'm not judging then maybe there is a reason one of her friends has diabetes for example and she needs to have a phone to be in contact with her mom at all times for my family this is what i believe is right and you know it's stoicism has helped me to stay true to what i believe even if it's not the same as what other people believe but i think it's right for my daughter in our specific situation so that's just another example from when a child is a little bit older
1: yeah i suppose it's like um you're doing what's right for you and your daughter. And I think a lot, a lot of times people allow judgment of others to uh, sort of steal their, their, what they think is right. They steal it from them. People don't do what's right for them because they're worried about uh, other's judgments or even like this is the harm I see in social media is people are trying to impress others or appear just appear happy and successful rather than actually focusing on being happy and successful. So this perception... Like this idea of what people think of you is allowing, allowing, you allow that to dictate your life, and I think ruin your life. Um, and that's going back to the core principles of Stoicism, like just having the very basics. Like if if, if that's all you have is like sort of just virtue, um, and you kind of follow that as your guiding principle, I, I think that helps you sometimes when you're, you're being judged or you have people have got other ideas, They're saying you need to do this, you need to do this. And you go, does that line up with this? And, and you say, no, you kind of have to go, well, no, this is what I'm following. Um, I think you wrote in your book, actually, about putting um, putting expectations on others uh, allows them to control you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think you said about your daughter, if you put an expectation of them doing something, uh, so you want them to be a certain way or do a certain thing, and then they don't do it, then you're, it affects your emotions because now you're let down when they've done nothing wrong, they just haven't lived up to this expectation in your head.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And Marcus Aurelius uses the example of being a puppet pulled around on a string by whatever is happening external to you. And children are the perfect example of this because, you you know, you want your daughter to stop crying or you want your son in kindergarten to learn to read and he's determined not to. So, you know, you cannot, you're not actually controlling your child's body, right? That they are controlling that you can influence, you cannot control. But once you kind of let go of the idea of control, you can think in terms of, okay, I'm responsible. I have authority over this child. You know, they look up to me and I can influence them, but I cannot control them. And that allows you, you know, just that change in attitude allows you to focus on, okay, how can I be the best influence possible? I can't control, but what can I do? You know, can I be more encouraging? Can I set up the type of routine? Can I change the environment to encourage my kids to do what they want? And again, once you have done all you can do, you can let go of the outcome and say, all right, I did everything that I know to do. Now I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm not going to allow those negative emotions to, you know, ruin my relationship with my child. I'm going to let my child take it from here. So it is kind of putting trust in your child that he or she can, you know, wants to live a good life and is capable of doing certain things. And I think your child responds to that too, to that level of respect that you're giving them.
1: Yeah, I guess it's through, um, at least what that means to me a bit more is to be more of an example, more than an authority. Like rather than saying, do this, do this. It's like, um, well, I think um, like the quote, um, don't talk about what it is to be a good man, be a good man. Um, And I guess that kind of, is the same thing it's not like telling your child what to do it is i'm doing this and it's a good example um, and they might follow and i think that's a, a way to be sort of a good role model just in life anyway to other people rather than you see people go online saying you need to do this or you're doing this wrong bashing people i think if you just live this way um i don't think people understand how powerful it is to be a good um, character um i've spoke about this a lot is like there's some strangers. That I've passed in my life that have done an act of kindness or something really nice, and it's changed my life. 10 years later, I still think about this person or, or these people that have done these strange, these acts of kindness or just been a good role model, and it's so powerful. So, that's something I want to always get across to people. It's like, if you just live um, in a good way, whatever that means to you, like I, I follow Stoicism as I think it's a really good uh, blueprint for a good good way to live, then people see that and it shines through.
0: I was just going to say, it's even more so for your child, right? Because your child loves you so much and looks up to you and they can detect a lot of our emotions. Even if we're not saying our emotions, our children are so attuned to us that they pick up on that. So absolutely, you know, if you are able to model being calm in the face of, you know, frustrations, and if you're able to help your child, just through modeling that and your interactions for example with your partner your interactions when you go to the grocery store and you're interacting with you know the cashier your child picks up on all of that Whether you realize it or not, they're always watching you. And so absolutely, like you were saying with your mother, that she was your greatest role model. And I think that's true for everyone. Sometimes a parent can be a great role model. Sometimes they can be a negative example, but children are always so attuned to what their parents are doing. So yes, number one is to be a good role model.
1: Yeah, I like that. Um, How how would you, uh, and you've wrote about it, but how would you like sort of um, like, my intentions is to sort of pass on um, the idea of living in in accordance with nature. It's a very, like, I guess to a child, that makes no sense, but how would you pass that on to um, a child? Or like, when would you pass it on?
0: Yeah. So I usually don't talk about philosophy with my kids. Yeah. I mean, my daughter's 11, so she's aware of kind of what I do in life and they always ask questions. But if you start, you know, lecturing your child about philosophy they will just shut you out. You know, they will tune out and you will not accomplish what you want. So for me, I find apart from being a good role model and, you know, modeling your choices, like, okay, do we go shopping at the mall or do we go on a nature walk, right? Which one of these is the more stoic choice? Which one is living in agreement with nature? And so the choices that you model, your values in life will come through to your child. That on its own is very powerful. I think also what I do is look for those small teachable moments in life, you know, your child comes home from school and they say, so-and-so called me stupid today, right? How do you respond? Do you get angry? Do you tell them, well, you call them stupid back or something like that? Or do you model a more stoic response and say, oh, well, how did you handle that? Mm, I see. Okay, well, maybe we can do it this way next time, right? And help them to understand that that insult does not matter for them in the way that other children might think, So I I like the teachable moments approach, but yeah, all of it together.
1: (laughs) I think it goes back to being a role model as well. Um, You know, you see a lot of people, like say um, your child being um, called a name at school and the parent will say whatever, like say the um, advice they give to the child is ignore that. But then the parent, if they're insulted, they start acting up going crazy. And I think this like this hypocrisy Kids are a lot more serious than everyone thinks and they're more aware of things going on. And they're told one thing, then they see their parent react in the opposite way. I I might be wrong here, but I feel like children are more likely to follow the example of the parent rather than what the parent's saying.
0: You are absolutely correct. That is what children will do. And they will, if they detect hypocrisy, then they will stop respecting the parent. So it is really important. If you believe in these principles and stoic principles, you know, you'd better live it and kids will call you out. <laughs> they will, you know, the older they get, um, if I ever do something that's not in line with my virtues, my beliefs about virtue, then, you know, my kids will see that and I don't want that. So that gives me another reason, just another layer of motivation to live this life that I want to live and be the kind of person that I want to be.
1: Yeah, I really like that. It's uh, I haven't thought about it like that way, actually, is it is a good mo- motivation to, um, you know, I, I get it with friends sometimes, if I'm overreacting a bit, maybe they're like, Oh, it's not very stoic of you. Um, like they say it's a joke It's very like simple stuff that's not that serious. And like, Oh, not very stoic of you. And I, I think that's kind of right with with a child. If, if you're if I'm trying to say like, you need to live sto- like a stoic life, and I'm not reacting in any way, it, it just, it just falls apart, I guess. You, you wrote about in your book about um, the premeditation of troubles and evils that lay ahead. Um, like you, you expect to meet these problems. I think uh, Epictetus talks about when you go to the public baths, expect to meet um, rude people, people shove you, people splash you. And personally for me, that's just been huge in, in life. Like it's, it's really helped me because you, you go on public transport or um, throughout life and I expect I'm going to meet these problems, especially ones that you meet every day. Um, can, Can you just explain that concept a bit more?
0: Yeah, I think you did a great job explaining it. But as far as, you know, everyday life with children, you can say, okay, you know, when you wake up in the morning, say today, I might be shopping with my child and she pitches a fit in the store. Or for my, you know, 11 year old daughter, I can wake up and say, okay, I know my daughter really wants a phone. I need to prepare myself. How am I going to deal with this? You know, if you are prepared in advance, and Seneca says this, if you're prepared in advance, then when it actually happens, it doesn't seem as bad because you were expecting it. You knew it was on the way and you're not surprised. Seneca says it's the element of surprise and shock that a lot of times trips us up and makes us respond in ways that we would prefer not to. And I found this to be true. I I'm really bad with surprises <laughs> dealing with, you know, those shocks. And so the more I'm able to prepare myself and, you know, you can't prepare for everything. Right. But there are a lot of things, you know, you might expect to meet with this colleague who you don't get along with. You might, you know, you're going to Christmas with a family member that you don't see eye to eye with that kind of thing. So you can prepare yourself in advance for a lot of things and for the others you know expect to be surprised expect the unexpected so try to adapt yourself to you know to go with the flow to roll with the punches as they say and um just be able to cultivate a little bit of flexibility with your responses to other people i think because you never know what life is going to throw at you
1: yeah I, I, the way i see it sometimes is like like you talk about a colleague or a boss or um, someone you you meet every so often in public, or or even like your boss is like occasionally late. Um, I've started to think it's really silly to not expect these things. If say like once a week your colleague is rude to you or annoying and you let that disturb you, eventually you should go, right, I know this colleague is annoying. The way I sort of say it is like, um, it's a bit strange, but like, you know, dogs bark and this rude colleague is going to be rude, and I wouldn't go. Oh, that dog's barking again! Like I know, I know a dog will bark. So when the colleague's rude, I go. I know this colleague's rude, and for me, it does strip, or like the surprise. I think that's yeah, that's it perfectly actually. Is it's the surprise that really catches us off guard. Um, you were saying about Seneca has like he has a way of doing things. Do you have a morning routine?
0: I always wake up in the morning and drink my coffee and have a time to read, reflect. I, I do different things during that time. So sometimes I'm reading, you know, the discourses. Sometimes I'm journaling. I wanted to show you, I don't know if you have read this book of mine. I haven't got
1: around to reading it yet, no.
0: Um. So sometimes I journal. Sometimes I, you know, I'm working on a philosophical essay for my substack. So, you know, I'm doing different things, but it's all related to stoicism. And I find that the more you can just keep these concepts in your mind, the more you can pull them out when you need them throughout the day. So it's all about having them, you know, top of mind first thing in the morning.
1: Yeah, I think I I have a copy. Well, I have all the Stoke books, but I have a copy of the meditations that I've been reading because it was my introduction. I've had it for like 10 years now. And I read it pretty much every single day. Uh, you know, if I'm in the gym, at home, anything. And it doesn't take much. I'll just read like half a page or I'll take one little entry and I'll just be pulling it apart. And it it, all, it just, something new stands out. The next time I read it, something new stands out. But I, I've got this like thing that once you start, of start the journey, not just a stoke journey, I'd say the ph- philosophical journey, I think then when you're heading to life, anything sort of becomes a lesson.
0: Totally agree. Yeah, it's all material for life. This is what Epictetus says, that it's the art of living. And so every single thing that happens to you becomes material for you to practice this art. So he compares it to a carpenter working in wood, for example. Um or a blacksmith, you know, working on, on metal. So all of this, this is your life. This is your project for the rest of your life. So everything you do contributes to making this beautiful. So yeah, I love that way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, I, I really like that example actually. I think that's one thing I think pretty much ever I wish everyone could understand is, you know, like if you're given this block of wood. Um, You don't have to just accept that it's just a block and this is who you are. This is the life you live. I think once you understand, you can start to like shape this block and it takes years. It takes a lot of hard work, a lot of um, understanding, a lot of changes, but you can start to shape it into something quite beautiful and um, something you actually want.
0: Absolutely. Make it your own. Don't just copy what other people are doing. (laughs) Carve it your own way.
1: I hope you're enjoying the talk so far with Brittany Polat. Stick around because it gets even better. And we talk lots more about how to be a good person, how to be confident and how to be a good parent, which I think being a good parent can transfer into every aspect of your life towards being a good friend, towards being a good partner, being a good leader. So stick around. A quick word for today's sponsor, Huel. Huel is a quick, affordable, nutritiously complete food with everything that your body needs. On the topic of parenting, myself with a five-month-old daughter being a busy parent trying to balance it with my writing, my filmmaking, and doing the podcasting now and everything else that goes on in your day, um, Huel has been pivotal in all of that. Huel gives me the confidence when I'm on the go, when I'm busy. If I just grab one of their products, maybe it's um, one of their meals or one of their drinks, um, wherever I go, I know that I have something that is quick to use, it's practical, it's going to be tasty. And no matter where I am, instead of just like quickly nipping into a fast food place, getting some rubbish junk, I can grab my Huel meal and I'm getting all my nutrients and even I'm getting my protein that I need for my workouts and to fuel my day. If you are interested in any fuel products, use my code. The link will be in the description below. I hope you enjoy. i would let us know, maybe you don't have a favorite, but who is your favorite stoic?
0: I do have a favorite and it's Epictetus.
1: Yeah, um, mine was Marcus for years but then when I started reading the um, Epictetus as much as I was reading Marcus Aurelius, And it kind of started to switch. I I like, I don't know, I think, I I like his thinking a bit more. Um, It's a bit more, I think, hard to relate to, I guess, when you first read it. Um, But why is Epictetus' favorite?
0: I mean, they all have their own styles, and they were doing totally different things, right? Marcus was writing for himself. He was not planning for anyone else to read this. So he wasn't trying to make it entertaining or anything like that. He was just writing for himself to rehearse those philosophical concepts that he had learned. Whereas Epictetus is trying to be entertaining, right? He's a teacher, and he's an amazing teacher. I would so love to be in his ancient classroom, you know, sitting there watching him making fun of the arrogant students and There were a lot of people, so he taught basically what we would think of as college students today, maybe late teenagers, early 20s, this kind of thing. But there were also prominent citizens of the Roman Empire who would come into his classroom and listen to his lectures. And so throughout the discourses, you see him talking to some of these government officials, like a grain inspector, for example, and talking to him about his family. So there's a variety of people that he's talking to and he's just so witty. And you know, self-deprecating, he makes fun of him, himself and his limp and things like this. So he must have just been an incredible teacher. Do
1: you think some of his teachings were for dramatic effect to his students? Like some I can think of off the top of my head is, um, I'm sure he talks about um, if you're to be, is it to be beheaded? Uh, Then why why complain? I can't remember and say uh, why isn't he being beheaded? And then the other is like um, when you kiss your child or your wife goodnight, uh, just remind yourself that these are mortal. Do you think they were there for dramatic effect, or do you think this is actually
0: the character he was? I do think that he's being provocative in some ways to try to be memorable. You know, he wants to. um, Some people call it shock and awe. You know, you want to get somebody's attention and then astonish them, surprise them, make them think carefully about what you're saying. So I do think there's an element of drama that he has added, but at, at the core, those teachings are true. So when he says, you know, while you're kissing your child or your wife, good night, you know, say, I might not see you again. I think that the core of that idea is true. And while I would never recommend actually saying that out loud to somebody, <laughs> that love, I do think, as an internal practice, that is extremely valuable. It took me a while to get into that. Um, I, I think that's the hardest one. I think thinking about your own death is one thing, it's easier to accept than thinking about the death of your loved ones. And especially, of course, when you have a child, it's just. A totally different level of acceptance that's required. And it took me at least a year or two after I learned about stoicism to be able to to even think about that for my children. But once I had reached that stage where I was ready for it, it became a really invaluable practice. So I would recommend that you do internalize it, maybe not talk about it with other people though, just use good judgment about that.
1: Yeah, so um, it, that's something that's helped me loads, um, specifically Epitias' teachings on death in a way. You know, me and my partner, we made like a death box. Um, and, you know, sort of, you're kind of planning for your death. Um, but it, it's, it's such a weird switch. When I was younger, I was so afraid of death. Like, I couldn't sleep at night because I was so afraid, like, what if I don't wake up? What? And then I kind of just got over it by thinking I wouldn't know. Like, if I died, I wouldn't know. Um, that helped me when I was younger. But then I learned about the Stoics and, like, specifically Memento Mori. The, the concept seemed very cool to me when I, when I was a bit younger. So I kind of kept going down that, and it's helped me loads. And I think sometimes with, like, teaching, say, kissing your um, your child or partner, good, um, like, reminding yourself that they're mortal, um, it's very extreme. So, like, this is how it's helped me. And one about, it, you know, if you're being, I think it's being beheaded. I can't remember that quote. Um, you know, it's a, the most extreme case you'll ever, um, you'll ever meet. And he talks about, like, you can, you know, you can chain up my legs, chain up my arms, but you'll never, like, chain up my will. And 99% of people will never be in situations like that, the very peak. So, I think if, the way I look at it is, goes, like, there's a guy that lived like this. I'm, like, down here at a different level. Um, I can live. I can live by his con- the concept and the principles that he's teaching in my life. So I can remind myself, you know, if something breaks, um, every- nothing's like I can't guarantee something won't break. So when something does break, I'm like, oh, you know, it's like the teacup, um, the beautiful teacup. Um, remind yourself that that teacup could break, and when it breaks, you go, "Oh, I always knew it could have broke," and it kind of strips the power away.
0: Right, and you have to remember too that. During the time when Epictetus was saying all this in the Roman Empire, life was a lot more dangerous than it is for us now. You know, there was a real danger that a tyrannical Roman emperor would imprison you and behead you or that your wife and child would die. The infant mortality rate, of course, was was terrible. And even Marcus Aurelius, you know, the Roman emperor, he lost the majority of his children. I think something like 13 children, something like that. And, you know, he had the best medical care available. So it was truly a more dangerous time. So I think that should make us number one, pause and be grateful for what we have today. But also kind of like you were saying, you know, this is a philosophy that was made for really dire times. So if it was able to help a slave and a Roman emperor with all of their massive problems, which I fortunately don't have today, then I can handle it, right? A child's temper tantrum or, you know, a, a bad colleague or whatever it is, I can handle this. It's made to deal with tyrannical emperors. So to me, it makes me feel good that my philosophy, even if it's not, even if I'm not called on in those situations, that it can handle it if necessary.
1: Yeah, I like that. It, it like instills a bit of confidence in you. Something I've actually never thought about that is Epictetus is... I think like you're saying, he's saying these things at a time when um, you can get in a lot of trouble for saying these things. You know, you can can be exiled, you can be killed. And he's saying it to a public crowd. Like it's kind of, uh, it, it takes a lot of guts, I suppose. I've never thought about it that way. He's going out and kind of going against what he's supposed to be doing.
0: In a way, yes. And philosophers were actually exiled frequently in the Roman Empire. So Musonius Rufus, the teacher of Epictetus, He was exiled. Seneca was exiled. Um, You know, Seneca was forced to commit suicide by Nero. So obviously, yes, these are very real threats. And, you know, Epictetus is kind of sticking his neck out a bit, so to speak, for some of these. But I think it makes it all the more meaningful, you know, that he was able to do this.
1: Yeah. Um, So going off the... um... I suppose, the misunderstanding of Stoicism. Uh, one thing, I think it's in Aurelius he talks about kindness being invincible. Um, and, you know, when I first learned about Stoicism, that doesn't come into my head. And a lot of, I've, I've posted things like that, and people are like saying, like, this isn't Stoicism. Um, could you just expand on this concept of kindness or kindness being invincible?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I'll talk about some of the other positive emotions as well. So, you know, a lot of times we think about Stoicism as just getting rid of the negative emotions. But in fact, what the Stoics were advocating, kind of like you mentioned earlier, was that we, we feel these positive emotions. So joy, for example, they advocated joy and goodwill and cheerfulness. And I know a lot of, maybe some of your audience might be surprised to hear that, but it's more about the destination. It's not so much what we're getting rid of, the baggage that we're getting rid of, that's important too, but it's also where are we headed? The goal is not to be emotionless. So Epictetus says, I don't want to be unfeeling like a statue. That's not humanity, right? So the Stoics acknowledge that emotions are part of human life, but what we want to do is correct our values so that we're getting rid of those you know, those ungainly emotions that pull us down and we have emotions that will lift us up to realize our full potential for rationality and sociability. So the Stoics saw rationality and sociability as fitting together two strands of human nature. So we are made as social creatures, we're made to get along with other people, kind of like we were talking about earlier. And so part of the positive emotions that we're feeling are cherishing others This is actually a word that they used in Greek is cherishing and welcoming and goodwill towards others. So very, very strong, positive emotions, just feeling joyful about your life and what's in it and the people around you.
1: Yeah, I think that takes a lot of strength um, to do these things, especially if you're prone to a negative way of thinking or Um, You know, I think the way I see it is being vulnerable enough to welcome other people and be sociable. It is it makes you vulnerable. And I think it takes a lot of strength to do these kind of things.
0: Right. And this is something I've thought about a lot. So a lot of people see a conflict between having affection for other people, but also not allowing other people to control your happiness. You know, there's kind of the idea that if you love somebody, then you'll be upset if they go away or you'll be upset if they pass away or something like that. So a lot of people see a contradiction or paradox between loving others or and also being independent, being happy in yourself. So it is a little bit nuanced, but it is possible to do this. You love other people, but your happiness does not depend on other people. So, you know, I think we can see this most clearly with a child and the ancient stoics did say that, you know, the the ultimate loving relationship is the parent-child relationship. But then you can also extend the same thing to other people, to your you know, your partner, your romantic partner, other family members, friends, neighbors, and kind of extend it outward. But the, you know, the paradigmatic relationship is between parent and child. So you're going to love your child no matter what they do, right? Whether they're crying, whether they're difficult, you still love them. What's the challenge for a parent is to say, even if my child doesn't do something that I want, I'm still going to love them. My happiness does not depend on them doing what I want. My love is here. My love is strong no matter what. And I'm happy because of that. So it's a little bit, um, you know, paradoxical, but I think that's what the Stoics are talking about.
1: Yeah, so that that love, the parent-child love, that, that sort of relationship, do you think um, a goal would be to broaden that same sort of feeling you have towards them um, to kind of like um, your fellow man and then... So broader sense.
0: Yeah. So you're never going to have exactly the same level of love. Obviously, you know, that's a special bond, the parent and child. And part of it is because you spend so much time together. You know, you automatically have an opportunity to love the people that you spend time with. Someone that you don't know and will never meet. You know, you can't love them because you just you don't know them. You've never spent time with them. So our challenge is to respect and care for other people even if we don't have the same level of strong connection with them. So for example, you know, your neighbor who lives across the street, who you might see once a week passing in the street, you might say hello, right? Um, You're not going to love that person to the same extent that you love your child or your partner, but you can still understand that they are worthy of respect and that your actions should not, you know, be against them, that you should not infringe on their, right to personhood or however you want to say it, but they, they're still a valuable person, even if they're not a close part of your life, but they're still worthy of having the same, you know, the same respect that you and your family members are. So we don't privilege our inner circle, even though we automatically, we, you know, we're going to love them more, but we understand that every person on earth basically has the same level of respect and worth.
1: Yeah, I tried to, I guess, hold that principle. Um, this is before I had a daughter, but like, hold the principle of treating strangers the way I treat someone I love. And obviously, the, the feeling, the feeling isn't there, but the principle was there. So um, it, it was quite amazing, actually, how it worked with me. Is that those people in my life, like the um, the uh, security guard at the local shop. Um, he seemed really rude he seemed like he didn't like me and then i decided this idea of treating people like someone i love and every day i'd smile say morning and he was he remained rude and then one day out of the blue he was the friendliest man ever and i realized he uh, his english wasn't very good so he probably was just avoiding speaking to me because his english wasn't very good and, you know, if I just carried down the, the path of thinking, this guy's rude, this guy's rude, I would have never understood that he's actually a nice person. And just holding that belief, and I, I always hold it, I, I've come with like a concept of being like extreme kindness in a way and extreme understanding of um, people might be rude. And that's something I hold now. If that person's rude to me, maybe it's because, um, you know, they can't speak English, so they don't know how to communicate in the way that I understand And just holding the principle of treating people like someone I love, that's helped. Like it's changed my life and it's helped me be more confident because I'm no longer um, as intimidated by things. I'm more looking from a perspective of I can be nice to these people.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing example. And again, that's that, I think that's a perfect illustration of how your happiness comes from within, right? Because you are bringing that kindness to that person. You're not dependent on the security guard, to be kind to you, to be happy. It's coming from within you. So I think that's what this self-sufficiency in stoicism is talking about. You're a nice person regardless of whatever the other people are doing. And and the example that you just discussed, you are able to bring out kindness in someone else too. And I think that's what usually happens. Most everybody most people are nice and they want the opportunity to be nice and a lot of times in our world today you know it's so fast-paced and we, we cross paths with so many people we don't have time to really give them that consideration but almost everybody is longing for that kind of connection and kindness so I think it's awesome that you were able to bring that out of that person and that that also reminded me that Epictetus says we shouldn't judge people hastily you know We don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't know their reasons for doing what they do most of the time. Maybe in some rare circumstances, we do know exactly what their reasons are. But most of the time, we don't know what their reasons are for doing something. So, you know, try not to judge unless you really have to.
1: Yeah, I I think the idea of not understanding why someone does something, you know, um, I always give the example of... Um, if you cut someone off in traffic, you you would give yourself an excuse saying, I'm in a rush, I've, I've got something really important. But if someone else does it, you don't give them any of those excuses and you say, this is a rude person. So I think just expanding expend, that like understanding that other people have their own unique lives, their own struggles. Um, and if that person's rude, it could be a one-off in their life because they're having the worst day ever and they're, they're acting out of character.
0: Yeah, totally agree.
1: You talk about... Um, this is something that really interests me is, um, I might be misquoting, but you talk about that an overactive mind can be a good thing, whereas people see it as a negative thing. You can kind of switch it and turn it into a positive thing.
0: Yeah, this has been my experience because I'm, you know, classic over analytical mind. <laughs> and I've always thought it would be difficult for me to overcome that and find inner peace. So, what I was able to do and what Stoicism allowed me to do was since my mind is active, I'm able to kind of use that as my monitor to say, you know, oh, let's look at that from a different perspective. So, um, you know, if somebody says something that I don't like, for example, that old me might have found rude you know, stoic me can say, okay, hang on a minute. Let's back that up. And let's reframe that. Do I need to be angry by what this person said? Oh, wait, no, I don't. So having that active mind, I think a lot of times it can be a drawback, but you can learn to make it your friend. So I think part of being a stoic is working with the gifts that you have and working with the personality that you were born with. I don't think we can really change our personality. I think we can I think we can change our character so you know our values that kind of thing we can modify but just you know whether you're introverted or extroverted or whether you love hanging out with people or whether you prefer books this kind of thing i think that's a little bit harder to change so knowing what your resources are what your inner gifts are and working with your gifts and trying not to you know work against yourself but work with what you have
1: i like that yeah Uh, because i guess for the example of like you said, introverted or extroverted. I think a lot of people see in, like being an introvert as a negative, so um, you're kind of pushing away from that. And that, that's actually something I, I was doing is kind of pushing away from that. And you're, I guess, you're pushing away from who you are, which mm-hmm. um, I feel like would cause like turmoil.
0: Absolutely. It's also, I mean, it's difficult to remember this, but it's also a cultural preference. So Western cultures, we are very extroverted, right? Just the culture itself, we value gregariousness and, you know, being the party animal and that kind of thing. Whereas Eastern cultures, like in Asia and a lot of other traditional cultures, like indigenous cultures around the world, the culture itself values more of the introverted traits and more of the quiet wisdom, that kind of thing. So if you look at personality surveys from Europe versus Asia, you'll see in Europe where being extroverted is valued, people tend to identify themselves as extroverted and traits, they they say that they have extroverted traits. Whereas in Asia, where those introverted traits are more valued, people are more likely to say that they're introverted. So people can tell what their culture values. And you know we don't really think about that very often, but it's true. Western culture just happens to value this. Maybe that wouldn't be true if you were born somewhere else. So remembering that helps me to remember, hey, you know, it's not just me, maybe it's just a mismatch. I I happen to be introverted in an extroverted culture. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's not good or bad. It's just, it just is.
1: Yeah, I really like that. You know, I've never heard that that, the idea before that concept. And it it, that makes sense to me, especially in Western culture with with social media. It's like, um, the more extroverted you can be or not just extroverted, like more you can express yourself get out there it's rewarded now um so you see a lot of people striving for that and i guess a lot of it will go against people's um actual personality like they're pushing for something that they're not but that's i think that understanding will give a lot of people that feel like introverts i guess um it will give them more confidence in themselves
0: right Um, Again, taking away those value judgments like, oh, this is good or this is bad as much as possible. It just is. It's just something that's given and it's something that you can work with, but you can work with it in a good or a bad way. Just like money, you know, money can be used for great things. You can feed people at a soup kitchen or it can be used for terrible things. You can start a nuclear war. So the, the thing itself is indifferent. It's what you do with it that matters. And I think it's the same with those inborn traits. So being introverted or extroverted itself doesn't matter. It's what you do with it. So if you're an introvert and you're ashamed of that, you know, you're not going to be able to bring your gifts to light and share them with the world. But if you're able to find a way, you know, think about what you can give to people by being who you are, I think that's the more valuable path. And and that's not just me saying that, that goes all the way back to Seneca. Seneca identified that some people are, you know, they're great writers, whereas some people are great speakers. So he said, you know, figure out which one is you and then go down that path. Don't try to be something you're not. So does this, does that, would you say that
1: falls under the idea of Amalfati? Like, you know, you've been given, like say, um, God's made you an introvert or nature's made you an introvert. and you've been born this way, accepting your fate. That's something, I've never thought about it that way. I normally think of it as like external, it's like um, something bad happens, accept your fate, it's happened and make the best of it. But. Would you say that being an introvert, I guess, is your fate?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is malleable to a certain extent. Like if you're born in an extroverted culture, you're more likely to be extroverted. So some people, you know, nobody is 100% introvert or 100% extrovert. It's it's situational to a certain extent, but we definitely have inborn preferences. It's so funny because I'm very introverted. My husband is the most outgoing extroverted person I know. (laughs) It's
1: always the case.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? But it's just, you know, and we have similar values. So that's why we have a strong partnership, because, you know, we want the same things in life, we value taking care of our family, being good people, this kind of thing. But our expression of it is completely different. So he hates reading, and I read every day, you know, so I think either it doesn't really matter which one you are, as long as you figure out how to share those gifts in a good way.
1: Yeah, that's great. I like that. I guess it, if you have those core beliefs as well that we was talking about at the start, if you have them, and you kind of just follow them, and you do it your way, um, mm-hmm. it's always going to go in a good direction, I suppose. Or oh, not a good direction, it's going in the direction of, uh, you know, if your core beliefs are virtue, and in accordance with nature, that's sort of the direction you work towards, I suppose. Um, I, I remember reading something online, I think you're the perfect person to talk to this about, is... Um, or maybe someone was explaining it in a video, is when, you know, kids leave grubby handprints. I don't know if you ever heard this or read this. Kids leave grubby handprints on the window. Um, this person was saying, you know, you need to cherish that because I know you'll be getting mad at it and you'll hate it. But one day, your kids won't, won't be leaving grubby handprints on stuff, And you'll think, I wish there were kids again, pressing hands. Now they are grown up, they've left home. Um, and I love that concept. That's really changed my life, not just for kids. Like I think about people when some, you know, I know some people that are a bit too um, enthusiastic for me, a bit too much energy. And sometimes it used to annoy me. But now I'm like, if they stopped being enthusiastic, if they stopped being this way, I would feel so sad. So now I kind of accept all these things.
0: Yeah, I, I think in the context of children, it is particularly interesting, because as your kids get older, your daughter's only five months. So you might be able to see some of her personality, but you'll see it even more as she gets older. Um, And my kids are all, they all take after my husband. They're very energetic, outgoing, like kind of crazy. So uh, there've definitely been times when I have to remind myself to just be thankful that they are who they are, you know, while doing my best to contain their energy in productive ways. Right. But Sometimes I just think, oh, you know, why couldn't I have gotten one quiet, calm child? Why did all three of them have to be high energy? But, you know, you just have to be thankful that they are who they are and, and that you've brought forth life into the world. You know, life is precious and valuable. And yes, your kids do grow and change and you want to appreciate every stage that they go through. So, yeah, I would say just try to enjoy your child for who they are, whoever they are. Just enjoy that.
1: Yeah, I, I really like that. I think um, I think about that for everything is like um, if, if things happen, things are the way they are um, and you can't change it, then you sort of just love it for what it is. You accept it, make the most of it. And I, I think that can take off so much stress from people.
0: Absolutely. I think today we kind of have this idea that we have more control over our lives than we actually do you know, as humanity, we have mastered nature in a lot of ways. We've eliminated sicknesses in some ways. And, you know, we have so much more control over our day-to-day lives than people in the past did in the prehistoric past or even in the recent past. So we kind of have this illusion of control, but actually we still don't control almost everything around us. There are very few things that we do actually control pretty much our own thoughts and attitudes. That's the only thing we have 100% control over so I think stepping back and remembering that and just like you just said enjoying things for whatever they are that amor fati accepting things I think we've kind of lost that ability in our culture today and that's something that we can bring back through stoicism
1: yeah I think um there's I'm mixing it up now, if it's Epictetus or Moxurelius talking about an act, you're being an actor in a play. Yeah,
0: Epictetus.
1: Okay, yeah, and it's saying your role is just to play the character that you've been given to the best of your ability. And I think that falls into like whatever's happening in your life, you, you play it to the best of your ability. You make the most of it because, um, the, I mean, the obvious reason to do that is something happens, it's happened. You can make the worst of it or make the most of it. Um, it's still not going to change what happened but going forward from that point your life will be better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's um I'm not sure if you're familiar with Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Do You know Viktor.
1: Frankl? Yeah, I love his book. Yeah.
0: So he talks about in that last space, you know, even if you are in a concentration camp, you know, the absolute worst case scenario pretty much that could ever be, you still have that one little space left where you can choose to remain true to yourself, to remain happy, to remain, you know, engaged in life. And that's what he chose. In that last little space, you can't control anything else that happens to you. But that is what you can always control. And so I think, you know, again, we can be inspired by Frankel's example, hopefully, we will never have to go through that kind of thing. But even in our everyday lives with our little annoyances and our petty grievances that we have to worry about, you know, we can apply that same principle.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, I recommend that book to everyone. Uh, It's truly life changing. And I I think he calls it the he says, the last of the human freedoms is that that space to choose one's own way in any given set of circumstances. And I think that that, I mean, it's like all the Stoics, it's like the Stoics as well, like Marcus Aurelius, like you were saying, their lives were so extreme, so different to ours in ways we can't comprehend. But I think that transfers so much to our lives. Like with, with Viktor Frankl, um, just his mindset, it, it like when I was reading that book, it, it blew my mind. I couldn't actually believe what I was reading. I couldn't believe it. And the way he writes it, it's incredible. And that's what changed my life so much was just thinking he's in this awful situation but the way he's thinking is it's beautiful and i I adapted it into my life um, fully and that's changed my life and i recommend that book to everyone
0: yeah it is a life-changing book and that's exactly what epictetus is saying i mean that is the stoic concept of focusing on what you can control but i think frankel kind of updates it and modernizes us and puts it in more of a context that we can relate to so i think they go really well together
1: Yeah, something you write about a lot is, um, and I want to get a better understanding of it, actually, especially from your perspective, is thinking clearly. It it comes up a lot in your book, um, like clear thinking, thinking clearly. Can you explain that a bit
0: more? Right. So when we're talking about developing a philosophy for life, part of what we're trying to do is see the truth. I think, you know, there's a question. I actually opened my book, Journal Like a Stoic, with a quote from Epictetus, and so I ask the question, would you rather be happy and deceived, or would you rather know the truth and have to deal with some, something uncomfortable? So I think for anybody who wants to know the truth, then we need to try to think as clearly about everything as possible. So Stoicism is not just about, you know, making ourselves happy, feeling these positive emotions. It's about living a meaningful life, living a good and true life. So part of what the Stoics are doing is looking for truth in the world. And some of the techniques that we've already discussed today, like the value judgments, stripping away those false opinions and value judgments, that really is getting back to that idea of truth, looking to be as objective as possible about the world, getting outside of our own, you know, small, petty frame of reference, our own point of view, and seeing things as objectively as possible. Now, is true objectivity ever truly possible? Maybe not, but we can get as close as we can.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's something I've been focusing on a lot is truth. Like you can see it a lot, especially in Marcus Aurelius' writings is sort of like he's basically saying seek truth, at least from, from my perspective. He's saying like seek the truth. Um, and I think that plays a huge role, especially today when you've got people arguing over like preferences or beliefs, and they're just arguing just for the sake of um coming out on top people just want to win the argument and i feel like the stoics are just saying like just, just seek the truth there's perhaps you're wrong perhaps the person's right we don't know But if we go into this argument or we go into life just seeking the truth rather than trying to seek um one upon someone or seek, trying to win um basically seeking the truth is a positive positive.
0: Exactly. And it all goes back to Socrates, the founder of Western philosophy, because Socrates was somebody who would ask questions. Socrates didn't go around preaching a certain point of view. He just tried to pick apart other people's certainties that they knew what they were talking about. So he would go and ask, you know, these famous dialogues that Plato wrote down and he would just pick apart people's views until they realized that they didn't actually know what they were talking about. But at the same time, Socrates wasn't saying, Hey, I know what I'm talking about too. His point was that none of us know what we're talking about, right? We need to constantly be looking. And I think we've really come far away from that Socratic model these days, but that is the goal of philosophy is to keep asking questions and keep digging and keep inquiring and not feel like we, we know the truth ourselves, you know. If you are 100% certain that you're right, then you're probably not right. You need to keep, keep looking and keep digging a little bit deeper.
1: Do you think that, I
0: guess,
1: also is self-reflection?
0: Absolutely, self-awareness. And one thing that Epictetus says is, you know, some of his students would be saying that they knew more than other people. And he said, why don't you ask yourself, hey, if all these other people around me are confused, then why am I so sure that I know better than them? I'm probably just as confused as them, right? And so this is another reason why I love Epictetus, just like we were talking about earlier, because he is constantly saying that you should ask yourself questions, that you should inquire of your own impressions and really make sure that your own thoughts are accurate. Stop judging other people until you have done some inquiry into your own mind so i think this is something obviously not many people these days are willing to do it but i think if we do seek the truth if we want to live a good life then that's where we need to start
1: yeah something about um because i've like with stoicism i think people always expect people always expect me to just stick to stoicism or i sometimes get comments saying like oh why don't you look at taoism or buddhism and i do because i think it comes on the same thing as like Maybe the Stoics were wrong about certain stuff. Like they wrote, this is thousands of years ago. Um, life life has changed. Society has changed so much. They can't have got everything right. Um, so when I'm reading it, um, I understand some things maybe, although I actually don't think it's outdated. I think it's so applicable to life. But I, I hold the understanding that they could be wrong. And there is other avenues. Like I, I love Taoism. It's helped me so much. Um, and it's kind of, some some things are in line with Stoicism. But I think just having the openness that you don't have to be so rigid.
0: I totally agree. And I don't know if you've looked into Confucianism, but Confucianism is actually pretty close to Stoicism in a lot of ways. So I think a lot of the different wisdom traditions of the world are, you know, leading in the same direction. They just have kind of different ways of going about it. But I think a lot of them are in alignment on a lot of the core issues. And absolutely, I mean, philosophy is different from religion because, you know, it's not like a revealed text where people are saying you have to believe this one thing just because somebody said this right it's always a spirit of inquiry uh, again going back to Socrates the founder of western philosophy this is what he said we should always be asking questions so I think philosophy is different from like a more of a religion because you are encouraged to always be finding things out for yourself not necessarily sticking to the path that somebody else developed
1: yeah I really like that yeah I agree um last question because uh, it's almost out of time is um Being present, I think it's one of the most, I feel like it's one of the most important principles in Stoicism is just being present. Um, That's why when I'm reading um, like the Stoics, I get that idea a lot. And it is, it's something that's helped me a lot. And it's something I feel like helps a lot of people. And it's not just, it's not just Stoicism, you see it everywhere. Um, What do you think is the importance of being present?
0: Yeah, this is something I have to constantly work at. It doesn't come easily for me, but it is so important. So again, it goes back to the idea of amor fati and joy in whatever is, whatever is around you at this moment. Even if it's not necessarily what you would have planned for yourself, if you could choose anything, it is what your life is. And, you know, take joy in what's around you. So if you're sitting and drinking a cup of tea, then enjoy that cup of tea. Even if you want it to be, you know, Sitting on a beach somewhere drinking a sangria, you enjoy your cup of tea in the rain, right? So, whatever you are doing now, it becomes the most important thing for you to be doing instead of letting your mind wander to all the other possibilities or someone you saw on social media doing something or maybe something that you would have been doing before you had kids. I know this was a struggle for me. Giving up, you know, traveling, for example, after I had my kids and, and things like that. So not letting your mind wander to all of the other thousands of things you could be doing, but focusing on, okay, now I'm doing laundry. Earlier today, I was just folding some laundry and thinking, okay, you know, I'm really happy I'm folding laundry now because, you know, it's important for me to have clean clothes for my family, even though, okay, nobody really likes doing laundry. But if we can just bring to that spirit of awareness and focusing on the present moment, it becomes less of a chore and more of something that has meaning. It's a meaningful experience. So I think it all ties together in just appreciating the present moment.
1: Yeah, I, the, I like the idea of laundry because I had a similar experience with gardening. And I think it comes down to destination addiction, where it's like, we're always trying to just get something finished so we can get somewhere else. And uh, my experience with gardening, went, like this is like a while ago, I was doing some gardening and I was just trying to be present do the gardening. And someone offered help saying like, oh, I'll do it. We can quickly get it out of the way. Then we can do this. And I, I just said, like, I was oh, thank you. But I would just carry on. Because at that moment, I was like, why am I trying to get rid of this experience so I can move to a different experience? And when I'm in that experience, I'm just going to do the same, like move on to the next one. And, and I feel like everyone's just kind of jumping to, especially with like school, you go from school to college to this, to this, to this. And where are we actually going?
0: Right. You're just getting closer to death is all you're doing, really.
1: Yeah. And like well, like the Stokes say, you know, death can be, death is just around the corner in a sense, or it could be just around the corner. So we're trying to get somewhere and we don't know if this could be our last day. Um, and I just love the idea of just, just I feel, I can't. Remember, you said making what you're doing right now, the most important thing in your life.
0: Yeah. And it, again, it goes back to the art of living, right? You're an artist whatever you're doing now, you know, you're carving your life. This is your life. It's not something else. Your life is not over there. It's not in the past or the future. Your life is right now. So whatever you're doing in the present moment, that that is you. So yeah, it's very, very hard to do. And this is something I have to constantly remind myself to do, but I think it is so important.
1: Okay, great. So last thing, just to wrap this up, what is your, so if someone was to take this away, some sort of philosophy for their life, what is your life philosophy? If you could sum it
0: up. Um, focus on what matters, which is your inner character and what you are able to offer to the world. Don't, don't get distracted by everything else that's going on around you. Focus on what you are able to bring to the world and your, your own joy and your own spirit.
1: <laughs> I really enjoyed this talk with Brittany, especially being a new parent, being a new father. Um, I was very interested to ask her questions her book tranquility parenting it's something i read um, in preparation of my daughter and it helped me a lot i really recommend that book to new parents uh, expecting parents or just parents in general i think it can be helpful but also people in general all these teachings about being a good parent um in Tranquility Parenting. I think they're so transferable in life and they've helped me throughout my days. If you have any questions about today's talk, uh, leave them in the comments and I'll answer the questions to the best of my ability. My book, The Everyday Stoic Simple Rules for a Good Life is now available for pre-order in America and Canada. So the link will be below. And of course it's still available for pre-order in the UK. I know many of you are already on it, so thank you very much. But I know it will be very helpful to some of you. It really explains Stoic philosophy in a practical sense, how it's influenced my life over the decade of using Stoicism, practicing Stoicism. Um, I've done it in a way that I think is understandable, and I give real-life examples in my life um, when instances that have been very difficult for me situations where people have tried to mug me any kind of situation it's helped me become a better person and i know if you read this book it'll be so transferable to your life thank you and have a wonderful day
0: i do i think sometimes going through really hard things does a couple things for us i think it really makes us appreciate the good times suddenly the everyday things that maybe you get to enjoy a 10 minute walk outside feels so much
1: better when you've gone through something really bad. Like we know a cold lemonade tastes better after you've mowed the lawn on a hot sunny day than if you just-